Hello, and welcome back, everyone. I'm Olivia Linnea, fourth-year med student going into emergency medicine, and you are listening to EMIGCAST episode 11. In this podcast, we will take a glimpse into the world of wilderness medicine and learn about how it ties into emergency medicine and EMS. To do this, we will look at the practice of medicine in a place where harsh environment and unique geography lead to the ultimate inaccessibility, the Grand Canyon. I spent a few weeks there working with EMS and search and rescue teams. For this podcast, I interviewed two of the physicians working with the Grand Canyon about the practice of wilderness emergency medicine. The first of our experts, Dr. Thomas Myers, has worked as a physician in the Grand Canyon for over 20 years. He has seen, responded to, and tried to understand the ontogeny of thousands of injuries and all too many traumatic fatalities occurring in the canyon. In addition, he has an immense amount of practical knowledge base about the practice of medicine in the field. Myers made the first ever detailed statistical analysis of Grand Canyon accidents in his book, Death in the Grand Canyon. Dr. Myers, to start, can you describe what wilderness medicine is and how it differs from an urban setting? The thing I like to say uh, about wilderness medicine that I think holds true whether you're a physician or somebody at even a basic first responder level, wilderness forces anybody who's providing medical care to really play doctor. And while that might sound a little condescending for physicians, too often, especially this day and age, we rely heavily on ancillary services, you know, imaging, labs, uh, support systems around us to help make diagnoses. When you're in a wilderness, you really have to play a physician, play doctor at the basic fundamental level. You have to um, use your skills as far as taking good history and doing good physical. And that includes if you're not even a physician, if you're a first responder, in order to make proper diagnoses. Because in a wilderness, definitive care is often really delayed, whereas in an urban setting or suburban setting, these things can be readily available as far as making a diagnosis and making a treatment. Wilderness, the big difference is you don't have those. So it's a delay, and you have to rely on good clinical skills, good basic history-taking and physical exam to make your diagnosis and then decide on appropriate treatment and or disposition. Evacuation can be a huge issue in wilderness. Following up on the importance of good clinical skills, what other sorts of unique skills are required when definitive care is far away? Are there skills that doctors are already trained in that become more important? I try to teach people who work as a first responder, even if they're a physician, that they need to go back to the root and need to be able to take a good, accurate history, uh, for example, with heat illness. And I'm at heat illness, and I'm trying to differentiate, is this, is this dehydration or heat exhaustion, or is this uh, hyponatremia, which are basically opposite problems. I have to get history and fluid intake and food intake and uh, progression of symptoms. So you have to do that. You also have to be really good 
a physical exam. You know, you have to sit down with the patient, lay hands on the patient, doing a good, a really good abdominal exam uh, to decide, does this person have an acute aspirin? Does they need to go out? Can I sit on them? You know, are there symptoms progressing? Things like that. And make a good decision about who can stay and who can go. Because that's really what it's going to come down to. And what can I can feel and what has to go now. And so <clears throat> it's playing doctor for real, as I said earlier, and really honing those skills that I think are most important in uh, being a, a physician. And that's laying hands on people and being a good listener. And they'll, they'll give you, they'll give you your answer almost all the time. It's just a matter of taking the time to do those things properly. Shifting gears to Grand Canyon National Park, what are some of the unique features that lead to interesting medicine? What are visitors to the park often unaware of when they arrive? I think the thing that Grand Canyon brings that most people are um, unaware of is the really, really uh, amazing spectrum of geography and climactic zones. You can go from the North Rim, a level of uh, not quite tundra, but you're at in the 9,000 feet, and, you can, and, and by walking, one of the few places on Earth, you can go down to Sonoran Desert, where it's extremely hot within a few hours. There's very few places on the planet you can actually do that. And so most people are aware of that challenge. They come here, they're not one prepared for the altitude. Most realize the Grand King is a, a giant hole that starts at 7,000 feet elevation. And then they're blindsided by how difficult it actually is to traverse it on foot, to actually make it to the bottom and then come out. And so the biggest challenges have to do with the, ge the terrain. It's very unusual. It has such high elevation, cool temperatures, and then low elevation, extremely hot temperatures, extremely arid conditions, all within walking within a few hours. So those are the challenges for people that come here. Those are the challenges that people who work in search and rescue have to deal with when they have to come rescue people who do get in trouble. Given this difficult terrain and harsh environment, what are the most common medical issues seen in the Grand Canyon, and how are they managed differently from an urban setting? How does the need for evacuation play into all of this? The most common ones in the backcountry have to do with heat. In the uh, summer, which is when we have most of our visitors, actually not a, the greatest time to be in the Grand Canyon. It just unfortunately uh, coincides and, or collides with the hottest time of the year. So people uh, get into trouble with heat illness, the whole spectrum from dehydration to exertional heat stroke and classic heat stroke to uh, over drinking to prevent it and getting cases of hyponatremia. So a challenge regarding that is how do I deal with somebody who's dehydrated? Maybe now they're vomiting or dry heaving because they're dehydrated and they're in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And I gotta try to either one, stabilize them somehow, try to rehydrate them, maybe orally, and see if they can continue what they're doing, whether it's a river trip or a hike, or do I have to get them out? And, uh, when it's really, really hot and somebody's dehydrated, but maybe not in full on heat stroke, is a really tough place to be. And it's the same for hyponatremic. They're, they've been over drinking and now they're becoming very ill. You're stuck in the canyon trying to make that decision. And how do I treat them? 
down there so they can con- continue with what they're doing. And if I miss, I misdiagnose the problem, I make them worse, have them end up in a more serious situation, which happens all the time, by the way, with heat. People assume somebody is dehydrated, and because of some of the overlap in symptoms between overdrinking and hyponatremia, they'll actually treat a person truly hyperbolinic or has been drinking too much, and, and they'll assume they're dehydrated and actually force more fluid onto them and make it worse and maybe send them into a coma. So the challenge is, you know, being in there, dealing with the heat, and that's the biggest one. As a backcountry physician, what do you like to carry in your medical kit? How does that differ between longer versus shorter trips? really depends. You know, if I'm doing uh, two or three days, I have a minor medical. I think the thing I really, really don't like to be without is a good SAMS one. That's so universal. A trauma shears, a knife, but a SAMS one, anti bandage, coban, things like that. And so the, the kid has to be geared for how I'm going to be out, how many days, how many people. Uh, for just a few days, I have a very minor medical kit. I like to have, again, uh, the SAM splint for me, uh, you know, I've used that so many ways. I think it's wonderful. Things for, like, anaphylaxis, stuff for wound management clearly is important, dressings, things like that. And then, you know, basic comfort care, anti-inflammatory, Tylenol, maybe some nausea medicine, antidiarrheal, things like that antibiotic ointment, some minor stuff. I don't like to carry a lot of I don't carry antibiotics and a bunch of fancy medicines and all that when just for a few days. And if if you're doing backpacking and I do a lot of that, I don't want a lot of weight. And so I think the people who bring a lot of stuff is a big common error. And I see that all the time with people, not necessarily physicians and any medical kids, but they bring way too much stuff that they don't need. So if I'm on a river trip, if I'm on a two week or, you know, 16 or 18 day river trip, yeah, this guy's one. I can bring a huge medical kit. I can bring, and I do bring a lot of stuff. I'll bring IV fluids. I'll bring some IV medications. I do like Zofran. I bring morphine. I bring, um, nitroglycerin. It depends on the clientele too. If I'm working as a guide on a, on a commercial river trip, which most of our passengers now are middle aged and older, and a lot of them have significant disease, you know, so I'll bring these things in case there is you know, say an acute MI or uh, dealing with some other issue that might require an IV. So I like to have that stuff. And I do like to bring a suture kit, which can be, that can be a double-edged sword. I've seen so many wounds that were mismanaged by well-intentioned doctors who tried to do stuff down the field. And in Grand Canyon, you know, if you misjudge and you suture a wound that should have flown out, uh, there's been horrible, horrible outcomes of bad infections and things like that because they were treated in the backcountry, sutured, and left there only to get really infected, despite sometimes empiric antibiotics. So I like to pick and choose what suturing I do down there, you know, where it's at. And if it's really infection-prone, like lower extremity, especially on river trips, with dangling, hanging off a boat, and exposed to cold, wa- cold water, hot, dry sand, you know, and they're very hard to keep clean. You know, even with the best of care, you know, you, you often get these things infected. So wound management, uh, suturing and stuff is something I'll bring on the river. I don't carry my backpack. If I'm backpacking, it's just too much. But, yeah, to river trip, I have so many things. I have a, a pharmacy, and I, uh, pretty much. But I also tell patients before I, or patients, clients, like on the river trip, 
if they're passengers, of course, passengers, I say, I have certain things, uh, but I'm not a pharmacy. And so everybody who goes on the river, uh, or if they're on a backpack trip, they have to have their own medications and not expect me to have them. And I think docs who go to the expedition dock, they make it very clear to the clients on the trip or if they're passengers for the company you work for. It's like, look, I will not have all this stuff. And then it's also up to the physician, do they want a play doctor? Like, I personally choose to bring my own major medical, even though I work as a commercial guide, I'll bring my own major medical on these trips, even though I'm not getting paid to be a physician down there. I, I do that for my own free will, and I, I treat lots of people on the river um, for a variety of things because I know how much it means to most folks to be on the river and the chance to go there and then what it means to, to lose it if they get flown out. So I bring that, but I have doctor friends who won't bring anything because they, they feel it's too much liability. And that's a personal choice, and every doctor has to make that in the wilderness. In your book, you've spent years analyzing medical emergencies in remote settings. What have you learned from that that you'd like to pass on to future physicians? The biggest thing, again, I can't stress it enough, is that physicians should rely, especially, you know, doctors who spend time in wilderness and then choose to be maybe an expedition doctor or they're going to be designated medical control for their trip on the Colorado River, for example, their river trip or their backcountry hiking trip. They have to make sure that they're comfortable with the very basics of first responder, you know, things like team safety, things that we take for granted that are pre-hospital people or nursing or medical assistant staffs do. You know, they come packaged to us, vitals, a working diagnosis, maybe some initial treatment. And then when we don't have these other people to get patients packaged for us and we're there acting as first responder, a lot of times doctors become all thumb. be actually a hindrance and get in the way of the people who have pre-hospital EMS uh, and search and rescue care experience. And so docs need to kind of go down to the basic roots, uh, fundamentals of what patient care is. As I said before, it's, it's good history taking and good physical examination, which includes you know, you doing your own vital sign, something as simple as that. You know, a lot of physicians never do it. It's like, well, in the wilderness setting, it's like, do it. You know how to do it, know where the stuff is to do it, and uh, practice it. And, uh, think about those things that you might have to do when you don't have all the tricks of the trade and the tools that you have in your um, hospital or your clinic or whatever. They're with you. It's like, well, what are you going to do without that? So that's the big, big challenge. And the other thing I think, too, with uh, physicians in a wilderness setting is vast majority of problems really require you to have the, the skill and the um, ability to talk people through or down or out of a crisis. And a lot of times when people get in a wilderness setting and physicians, this includes physicians, they can feel very uncomfortable out of their element. And if they get hurt or injured, then they, things really can be uh, difficult. And it's up to the physician many times that they're there acting the complete control to have the ability to say, look, here's what's going on as I see it, here's what we can do, and being able to talk people down or through critical situations in the backcountry can be a real challenge. Uh, I've been there many times. I've worked as a, a river guide and hiking guide, 
which I, I do think it's good for docs who have an interest in wilderness medicine to kind of pursue some of those things that uh, like that, like guiding, so they know what it's all about. That way it makes them better in the wilderness. While some of those skills you just mentioned are readily developed within medical training, many of those require experience outside of the hospital. Is there anything more on that you'd like to add? For doctors, if if you really want to be a wilderness medicine doctor or consider an expert, you got to get in that wilderness. And you know, one thing that really annoys me, is, and I've seen it a lot, is where physicians will be maybe book smart, but not actually backcountry smart. If you're going to serve as a uh, you know as a medical control, or you're going to be advisor on the on backcountry situations, you got to know that backcountry. You got to know pre-hospital care or the, the people who have to do first responders, the guides, what are they up against, what are they doing. And the best way to do that is either, one, do ride-alongs, or even better, you know, get back in the backcountry as a guide, as an assistant, do some of the things at that level, see what's being done, and know it really well. And that way, you can have the overlap and talk to talk to people who are in the trenches, you know, down wherever the wilderness may be, whether it's Grand Canyon or it's Teton or Alaska, whatever, it's like, get out of the hospital, <laughs> get away from the computer and your books, you know, because that'll only give you so much knowledge. And book smart is, is, is obviously really important, but practical knowledge from experience in the wilderness setting in a variety of situations, like I was telling you about backpacking and river running and all that, it's like, yeah, I can't comment on all this because I've done it a long time, so I paid my dues. So basically, pay your dues, get in the backcountry, Make some effort to get to know it, and that way you can talk the talk because you've walked the walk, and they'll know it. And if you don't do it, they'll know that as well. Let's give a warm thank you to Dr. Myers for his time. To summarize his key points, the Grand Canyon is an incredible range of climactic zones that can be traversed on foot in a matter of hours, and this subsequently creates unique challenges for both visitors and the search and rescue teams. Secondly, it's up to you how much you want to practice medicine in the backcountry as a physician. Some physicians choose to bring a full medical kit and provide full services while others have no interest in doing so. Thirdly, while a good history and physical are important in all areas of medicine, they become of paramount importance in the backcountry when other labs and imaging are not always available. Fourth, don't underestimate the importance of the ability to talk people down from a crisis in the backcountry. Fifth, be comfortable managing the basics of care and know when to step back for first responders who are trained to do so. And lastly, spend time on the front lines so you know what responders are up against, particularly if you're going to be advising them as a medical director in the future. Our second expert for this talk is Dr. Drew Harrell. Dr. Harrell serves as the current medical director for Grand Canyon National Park and in addition to this role, assists in the training of the EMS responders there. He is part of the University of New Mexico Emergency Medicine faculty and the EMS Medical Directum Consortium there. Dr. Harrell, can you describe your training and role as medical advisor for the Grand Canyon? How does this fit into your other work for the university? Yeah, so, uh, so for about the last two years, and it's uh, the, the medical directorship for, for the Grand Canyon um, is, uh, is, is a unique Opportunity, I think, to really practice medical direction for um, for people that are interested in pre-hospital care, 
um, austere medicine. And we've had we've had a very fortunate working relationship with the uh, with the Grand Canyon and the Park Service here in New Mexico and over at the Grand Canyon. Um, the way that that typically works, it's a it's obviously a different environment than urban or even you know suburban or rural medical direction um, work because it is it is a remote yet yet very robust EMS system. Um, really isolated from a lot of the standard um, access to care because of, one, kind of topography and some of the logistical concerns, but also it's just a very long distance if you're going to drive somebody. And uh, the, the Grand Canyon running about somewhere between 800 and 1,000 calls a year um, doesn't have a huge call volume, but we can have very, very involved technical rescues, as you well know from your time there, and something as simple as, you twist your ankle at Phantom Ranch and can't hike out, so what do you do? Uh, you know, if you're in downtown Portland or in downtown Albuquerque, we can find you something that we can put you in to take you to the, to, to a hospital to be evaluated. Um, so a lot of the, the interaction and the medical direction work, um, with me and with the, the rest of my EMS, uh, my EMS faculty here, um, a lot of times is, is online medical direction. Um, in conjunction with really whatever we're doing. So we could be working an ED shift and and have a call come in from medical providers in Grand Canyon that we're we're tasked with um you know taking the opportunity and the time to kind of work through with them what's the best course of action, um, making recommendations and kind of getting the best care we can given the logistics of the environment where the patient is, because if they're on the south rim that's a that's a developed EMS system for all intents and purposes. You can put somebody in an ambulance. You can take them to the hospital. It might take a long time to get them there um, relative to somebody that might call from Indian Gardens or Phantom Ranch or anywhere along, uh, you know, the inner canyon along the, the riverbank and create some fairly interesting logistical concerns and challenges to, to provide care to folks in a very remote and austere environment. In addition to the challenge of evacuation and transport to the nearest hospital facility, what are some other challenges specific to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, one one very specific thing that we see all at, at the rate um, within the Grand Canyon that really is is eclipses anywhere else that I've ever practiced. I was a former paramedic and a firefighter. Um, the exertional um, effects of folks trying to get to the river and back, or even just doing a day hike down into the canyon, for, um, really is a pronounced and very profound um, aspect of medicine that you don't typically see anywhere else, um, whether it's urban or rural, you know, big metropolitan areas. We like, you can really think of the Grand Canyon as the perfect people trap, because you start as high as you're ever going to get, which is really the the, the different, very, very different from anywhere else, where people out hiking always think about going up, where if you turn around to go back, it's easiest. And for us, um, really the, the, the preventative, the preventive search and rescue program there, as you spent some time doing, really found its genesis out of uh, an increasing demand for services for people that were not aware and prepared for the very, very harsh environment that you can get into just below the canyon rim. I can, you know, so what, what any of us would think, well, that's, you know, you can see Indian Gardens. It's right there. I can get down there. Sure, you can go down, but the problem is you've got to come back out. And that really um, uh, produces a unique amount uh, and a very interesting interaction in terms of the resources with the, the hyponatremia protocol that we actually have in place that deals with the exertional um, findings uh, after people 
maybe overreach a little bit and aren't prepared for the environment that you find once you drop down off of the rim into the canyon. When a visitor encounters trouble with these harsh conditions and becomes a patient, what is the relationship of responders on the scene interfacing with medical control? Yeah, uh, great question. And it's, you know, here uh, in or, or any large urban metropolitan area, you know, we're all very comfortable, any of us in emergency medicine, you know, there's there's the radio, if you will. Like if anybody's, you know, back in the 70s, you know, rescue and Johnny and Roy picking up a med radio, taking a report, um, that obviously doesn't work well uh, from the Grand Canyon to, to Albuquerque. So we spend a lot of time on the phone, actually. We have we have a dedicated um, cadre of EMS physicians who are available uh, via a phone call with a recorded line. So we've, we've, we've removed the radio and supplanted that with, with cell coverage um, as you are able to get it, or on sat phones if they're in an area where they can't call out uh, on a conventional cell phone or on a landline. Some of the ranger stations obviously have landline capabilities. So we, we interact um, ex- almost exclusively in a real-time medical direction uh, setting with the providers in Grand Canyon via, via cell phone coverage uh, and, and taking the, uh, the medical control emergency physician uh, discussions that way. As a medical director, what advice do you have for future physicians aspiring to work with EMS? Yeah, so uh, as you, as everybody knows, you know, this is the, the brave new world uh, within EMS. We have recently gained subspecialty status and recognition within the health of medicine, and it is a great opportunity uh, for those people that are interested in an area within emergency medicine that has not typically had, you know, a certification exam and an opportunity to do work to really explore that, and it gives you an opportunity as a provider to have a, a population level uh, impact, if you will, which is oftentimes overlooked. In the emergency department, we know the next chart that you see, that's the next patient you're going to take care of. In the EMS environment, you have the capability and the, po- and the possibility of maybe affecting your know, population level um, outcomes because of how you develop your EMS system, how you work with your EMS providers to improve care, whether it's um, systems level care for cardiac arrest, system level care for trauma, or in the uh, in the environment such as within the Grand Canyon in an off-care environment, working with a very dedicated group of providers that have identified specific concerns and medical events that, that help them, that they can make an improvement upon, for instance, the exertional hyponatremia, and really looking at how you can affect population level outcomes, which is not oftentimes taught. We talk about you know, epidemiology and whatnot during our medical school training, but to see it in such a way that if you make an improvement um, in conjunction with your pre-hospital providers to improve care and make better outcomes, that's the, the population level effect that we oftentimes don't have sight of uh, on the, the day-to-day operations in the emergency department. And that's one of the things that I find very satisfying from an EMS physician is one of the first group uh, with the subspecialty board certification that uh, that I really want to impress upon any, anybody looking at emergency medicine to, to look at from a subspecialty standpoint in the training. Let's give a thank you to Dr. Harrell for his time. To summarize his key points, the deep canyon and harsh environment of the Grand Canyon make it a perfect people trap. And while the Grand Canyon doesn't necessarily have a high call volume, managing calls coming from the Grand Canyon can be an involved process because often it involves technical rescues.
And last, working with EMS allows a population level impact as you can work to develop or improve a system for many responders to use. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and learned something more about wilderness and austere medicine. Join us next month for the next one. Thank you.